Republicans' desire to overthrow America's institutions and its entire regime of electoral democracy, their desire to do that, you know, easily matches or exceeds any similar feelings that you'll find on the left wing of American politics today, you know, in Antifa or, or these kinds of groups. <laughs> to another episode of America Explained, a podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Hello, I'm Andy Gawthorpe, a historian and columnist, and I'm the host of America Explained. We've got a great episode coming up today, but first I'd like to tell you just a little bit about the show. America Explained is a new podcast. It's a family-run podcast, just like Grandma and Grandpa used to listen to. And that means we're starting out small, and we'd really benefit from your help as we try to grow the show. Please remember to subscribe to America Explained so you always see new episodes in your feed. There's also an America Explained Facebook page, where we post written commentary and where we're building an international community of listeners. If you really want to help us grow, consider leaving us a 5-star review in iTunes or whichever podcast platform you use. This helps us find new listeners, and it's a great way to grow the podcast. We'll be so grateful for this help. In the meantime, enjoy today's show, and remember, you can always email us on producer at america-explained.com with any questions or comments. So, the votes have now been counted, and despite a better-than-expected performance in some swing states, Donald Trump lost the election, and it wasn't even close in the end. So, Biden beat Trump by 7 million votes, that's about a 4.5% margin, which is the biggest victory in a US election since 2000, with the exception of Barack Obama's landslide win in 2008. But despite this, since early November, Trump and the Republican Party have been engaged in an effort to overturn the result of the election and seize power for a new presidential term. In the US, a lot of things have to happen between the election and the new president taking office, so states have to certify results, the electoral college has to meet, etc. And the GOP has basically been trying to intervene at these points to interrupt the process and prevent Biden from taking office. They've tried to pressure election officials in swing states to refuse to give the official stamp to the results. Trump himself has put pressure on state legislatures to override the people's votes and appoint a slate of pro-Trump electors. And then the GOP has also launched these endless court challenges to try and get judges to overturn the results, culminating in a case that was bought uh, by Texas and endorsed by many other Republican uh, states and members of Congress. And this came to the Supreme Court. Um, It asked basically for the Supreme Court to invalidate the election result in in other states which had voted for Biden. The Supreme Court rejected this. um, And in return, the chair of the Texas Republican Party actually raised the prospect of secession, saying that perhaps, he says, quote, perhaps law-abiding states should bond together and form a union of their own. These event developments are really unprecedented in the history of the United States. And to discuss it all, I'm joined today by the British political commentator, Mark Thompson. So welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks for having me. Mark, what's been on your mind while all this has been unfolding? Well, I mean, lots of things have been on my mind. I think the first thing to say is I'm not surprised. I mean, I'm not really surprised at all that the post-election situation has panned out like this. I expected Joe Biden to uh, Joe Biden to certainly win the um, the popular vote, and um, I did expect him to win the electoral college as well. Although I I thought it might be a bit closer than it ended up being, as you say, it's uh, it's pretty big margin, and um, there's no doubt 
that Joe Biden has won. You know, had this been a lot closer, I think that's when things might have started getting stickier because recounts may have been, um, you know, more more plausible that recounts could have made a difference or that if there had been some shenanigans on the mar- in the margins. But the fact that he's won these votes by multiple tens of thousands, you know, won these states by multiple tens of thousands of votes indicates that, you know, this thing wasn't even really close. Now, the fact that I'm not surprised it went like this shows how far the US body politic has fallen in the last four years, just over four years, because in the run up to the election in 2016, things were already sliding quite badly, given that Trump had been selected as the GOP candidate and was looking like he could possibly win, although the polls were indicating he probably wouldn't. There was a there was a chance. Um, and it is unprecedented. It is outrageous. It's deeply damaging to democracy. The USA is supposed to be the shining beacon, the the an exemplar of how democracy can work and to just see this man turn up and just blow through all not just precedents but the law he's been in defiance of the emoluments clause since he took office nothing's happened people who are visiting the white house stay in trump hotels to curry favor with the trump administration he's appointed most members of his family to official positions within um his administration congress hasn't held him to account at all. They haven't. They haven't done anything. The, the, the impeachment thing that happened um, earlier this year, or rather, it, it didn't. It, he wasn't convicted, and that just shows how low American democracy has become. That you can have a man who is breaking the law. He is using. He is completely abusing his power, and nothing happens. Well, yeah. What so? As you say, the, the Trump administration has really made a mockery of this US claim to somehow be a beacon of democracy for the rest of the world. And what I find interesting is that this is a this is a role that Trump himself has never actually tried to play. So, you know, it's part of the standard rhetoric of American presidents to kind of extol the virtues of American democracy and to claim that they should act as a model for the rest of the world. But Trump has actually always been really, really critical of the way American democracy functions. So you know, even the, the election in 2016, which he won, he claims that there was massive fraud in that election. He now says the same thing in 2020. And he's implying that American democracy is so flawed that the country can't even run a secure election, right? Much less be, be a model for the rest of the world. It seems to me that what what has happened during his presidency is that he has then kind of remade the Republican base in this cynical image as well. So he's managed to convince a large portion of the public that, you know, the the section of the public that, that votes for Republicans to also just see no value whatsoever and no kind of um, nothing to be proud of in the way that Amor- American democracy functions. I guess that, you know, in, in the aftermath of the election, as we've seen this attempt to try and overturn the results, The best that you can say is that the people who needed to perform their functions for the process to go forward did so. So, you know, state level officials in swing states like Georgia and Arizona did certify the election results. Judges did throw out court cases. 
but pretty much every other part of the Republican Party has signed on to this myth. Yeah. So I think you know, we should we should be clear about something here. There's a very prosaic explanation for why Donald Trump positioned himself even before the 2016 election um, in such a way as to be critical of and highly sceptical of the US electoral process. He thought he was going to lose in 2016. And so he needed to undermine the basis of the system that he thought was going to lead him to lose the election. Now, as it happened, he won. He just squeaked it in a few states. And even though he lost the uh, popular vote, he won the Electoral College. But even then, he I think he felt like he needed to. And it's just purely ego based. I mean, there is no other plausible explanation for this. He couldn't handle the fact that Hillary Clinton got more votes than him. So he even instituted um, uh, an investigation, which found nothing, but an investigation to try and prove that millions of votes were stolen so that not only did he win the Electoral College, but he also won the popular vote. And you could see the same thing happening in the run up to the election this year. He was doing the same stuff. This time it was more focused around mail-in ballots. Um, and, you know, the crazy we've had this crazy situation where he spent months and months traducing um, his own governments and his own country's um, mail in uh, ballot process. One that, as an aside, he himself uses um, saying that it was unsafe, that it was going to be a disaster. Never any evidence for any of this. He would just say stuff and tens of millions of people in, in the country believe it because Trump says it. They believe it. I mean, that seems to be the way this thing goes. Trump told people not to trust the mail-in vote process and therefore made it almost inevitable that his own voters would not vote by mail. And Biden voters probably would quite significantly vote by mail because they did trust the system. The whole situation is just... You know, I've been commentating on politics for a long time and I've been studying politics ever since I was at sixth form college so i you know we're talking 30 years here that i've been following politics very closely one way or another and i've spent the last few weeks this isn't even about politics this isn't about the issues this isn't about health care or gun control or any of the other critical issues that the u.s should be dealing with this is about the ego of one man and how he's basically managed to brainwash millions and millions of people in his own country. Yeah, and it, it really just it demonstrates for me a couple of things about the modern Republican Party. So one is the extent to which it's animated completely by a desire for power and not at all anymore by principle. Everything that the party supposedly believes about law and order and states' rights and following the Constitution, this just goes completely out of the window as soon as their own power is threatened. And the fact that they would go down this dark road for the sake of Donald Trump, you know, who's a former Democrat, you know, an adulterer, a criminal, not someone who actually has really done much to deliver on their policy priorities. This just shows how how unmoored that they've become from principles. And then the, the second thing it makes me think about is the extent to which the Republican Party is no longer in any meaningful way a, a conservative party, but it's now a, a revolutionary party. Republicans' desire to overthrow America's institutions and its entire regime of electoral democracy just to maintain their own power, and their desire to do that, you know, easily matches or exceeds any similar feelings that you'll find on the left wing of American politics today, you know, in Antifa or, or these kind of groups. And it's also much more mainstream in the Republican Party than it is among Democrats. 
listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. So, you know, but bearing that in mind, what what do you think we can say about kind of the long term health of American democracy and the, the implications for American democracy going forward from the fact that the Republican Party is now basically this revolutionary cult? It's very difficult to predict what's going to happen, but I think there are a few things that we can we can look at now. And we can try and extrapolate where those things are going to go. So I think the first thing is there is a demographic shift that is moving against the GOP. And I think that there was a there was a pivot moment after Mitt Romney lost in 2012 when the GOP did actually take three steps back and reflect on the situation. And they did have kind of an internal investigation as to what happened, what went wrong and what they could do. And they they did recognize that they needed to appeal more broadly. Um, There was definitely a movement within the GOP to move in that direction. However, Trump comes along um, and against all the odds wins the primary and becomes the leader of the GOP and then becomes president. And all of that is window now. So this demographic shift and by that, I mean, um, first of all, the fact that older voters are dying off and it's the older voters that predominantly vote GOP. Um, we are also seeing, um, you know, demographic shift in terms of um, obviously younger people um, voting uh, for more left-wing candidates. Um, and there are other shifts as well that mean that it's going to be increasingly difficult for the Republican Party to uh, take and hold power. I mean, you've only got to look at the fact that of the last eight U.S. general elections they only won the popular vote in one of them in 2004, and that was with an incumbent president. But in terms of what happens to the Republican Party itself, that's impossible to predict because it depends what Trump's legacy is perceived to have been. Um, and An example would be what happens in Georgia in these runoff elections that are coming in January. Because I think one of the reasons why Republican leadership in, in other areas has been reluctant to move against Trump and to, you know, publicly denounce what he's doing is because they're desperate to just keep the show on the road in order to try and win at least one of those two Senate seats so they can keep control of the Senate. Depending on what happens in Georgia, I mean, you have had Trump supporters and, you know, people on his campaign team talk about it's not worth voting because it's all corrupt and therefore why bother? I mean, it's not going to take much, two or three percentage points of people who think it's not worth voting because it's all rigged. I believe Trump, I'm not going to bother voting. For them to lose those Senate seats, in which case Trump will have cost them the Senate. You know, he he won't just have cost them the White House, he'll have directly cost them the Senate. I could definitely foresee a situation where the Republicans lose these two Senate seats in January, and it's basically they've lost them all, because the reason they lost control of the House of Representatives in 2018 was a backlash against Trump. and the power brokers within the Republican Party may well think it's not worth it. We're going to have to move against him. We're going to have to, you know, have a reckoning with what happened and try and move on. It'll be difficult because, as I say, he's brainwashed so many people and there are so many people who vote Republican. I mean, you could you could imagine a situation in 2024 if the Republican Party had moved against Trump post him leaving the White House. He decides to run as an independent and half the GOP voters vote for him as an yeah. independent. That could definitely happen. So 
they've got to be worried about him. Um, but uh, it, it's it's almost impossible to see which way this is going to go. I think one thing we can say for sure is that the Republican Party is never going to attack in a moderate direction anytime soon. It would the amount of clean house activity that would have to happen before that could occur is beyond probably the next decade. Um, it will only be through repeated election losses over and over again that will make them have to face up to the reality. Yeah, and I think, so, uh, as as you say, predicting the future is so difficult. Um, but a big one of the big questions that we should ask, I think, is the extent to which we think that Republican elites are any longer really in control of this situation and the extent to which that they are now captives of this radicalized base. So, you know, like one thing that we've seen happen in European politics as well, actually, is that as kind of ethno-nationalist populist movements have risen up, mainstream conservatives have tried to deal with those movements by adopting parts of their rhetoric and parts of their strategy. And then they end up, you know, getting to some extent subsumed by these movements themselves and, and becoming captives to them. And I think that that's kind of one way of, of looking at what happened with Brexit. And it's definitely a way of looking at what's happened to the Repu Republican Party. I think that, you know, now the base of the Republican Party has become so radicalized that I'm not sure that Republican elites could actually turn against Trump even if they wanted to, because the main threat that they face is a primary challenge from the right. Or, as I said on Twitter the other day, actually, I think that when we talk about primary challenges coming from Trump figures, you know, we should say that they come from a parallel universe rather than from the right, because, you know, right-left doesn't really sum up exactly what's going on here, you know, but pro-Trump media has constructed just this complete alternative universe of fact that many 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 republican voters and politicians now live in and one thing that worries me is that you know what happens if for instance the um election officials in georgia and arizona who did actually act properly in this election they're now probably going to face primary challenges within the next few years and possibly be replaced by trumpist figures um, and then we have to wonder about the you know worry about the administration of of the next election and this kind of links back to me for me to the point that you made right, right at the beginning of your previous comments which was about the response of the two parties to demographic change as this demographic change has been happening and, and it's produced a map you know an electoral map that's steadily getting better for the democrats the response of the Republican Party has been to a large extent to turn their back on democracy itself because they don't want to deal with the effects of this demographic change. So this is why we get things like voter suppression, for instance, right, to try to make it more difficult for, for minority voters to vote. And there seems to be a real risk that going forward, the Republican Party is just going to retreat more and more into sort of anti-democratic politics rather than attempting to actually adapt itself to this demographic change. So Trump could could be one of two things. He could be either the final gasp of a dying form of doing Republican politics, or he could be actually the, the you know, one of the first figures in a completely new, radically anti-democratic Republican Party. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's like the way this is going to go. Because you know, if you were if you were looking at this from the perspective of how the laws of politics have generally worked in you know most 
advanced Western democracies over the last, you know, during my lifetime, the last, you know, 40, 50 years, you would expect it to be the last gasp thing. It would be, you know, Trump was, you know, just happened to fluke of the Electoral College to get in in 2016, even though he lost the popular vote. But the, the long term trend is clear that the Democrats will just do better and better demographically and the Republican parties can do worse and worse if they stick to the, the kind of policies and rhetoric that they've had. You would expect 20 years from now, the Republican Party would look very different and it would have to have tacked into a more moderate direction and it would be more like uh, a moderate right wing party rather than you know what, it's, what it seems to be at the moment. The problem is that's not the way this has played out in the last few years. And the question is, is Trump... Um, you know, an, an aberrance in that respect, or as you say, is he actually a harbinger of what's to come? When Trump was asked in one of the debates about the Proud Boys, who were white supremacists, he said, "Stand back and stand by." It's not really a dog whistle. That's stand yeah. by to, you know, come onto the streets with your guns and protect, you know, my presidency. That's effectively what he was saying. It is impossible to know where we're going to be, and I would like to think that this um, is a point of inflection in the historical arc rather than, you know, a, a turning in the other direction that's going to continue for the rest of my lifetime. I mean, I, you know, I, I am generally quite optimistic about stuff. I mean, you know, I didn't vote for Brexit. Um, I voted Remain. And even though it's looking quite possible we'll end up with no deal, I'm not one of these people who thinks that in 10 years' time it'll all be terrible. Like, you know, we'll make do, we'll get by, we'll, we'll be okay. We'll be as good as it would have been, but we'll be okay. Um. But it's difficult to, to see in the US. I mean, you know, the fact that they're talking about secession, the fact that you've got so many tens of millions of people who've been radicalised into voting for a man like Donald Trump. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about American politics, foreign policy and culture for an international audience. Like it? Then tell a friend and help us grow. I just uh, want to return back to a point you made a few minutes ago about kind of long-term cycles in Western politics. So if we look at the history of, let's take British and American politics over the past few decades, and we've tended to see that, you know, particular kind of worldviews have risen to dominance and then receded again. So in the 80s, you know, you had Reagan and Thatcher together. Then in the 90s, you had Clinton and blah. And, you know, it might be kind of, tempting to dismiss what we see at the moment as just another kind of temporary victory by this kind of right-wing nationalist worldview you know so you have brexit in the uk and you have trump in the us and then hope that it's going to be replaced by something else you know a decade or so from now but one thing that i'm really interested in that that i think helps us to understand what's going on is the way that social media has transformed politics all over the world in a way that i think might be more structural than that you know so social media produces within people a tendency towards extremism because you know the the most extreme viewpoint that you put out on social media is the one that gets the most engagement and the most retweets and the most likes and you know i think all of us who who tweet a bit kind of struggle with with not uh not indulging this too much right because we're very aware that, that it's a thing and it also produces very sealed off groups of people who are just talking to each other and i think that that also uh, leads people towards extremism and, and it leads 
leads them towards kind of an extreme conformity with a particular worldview as well. I, I think that we've seen this in British and in American politics. You can see this with the Corbyn movement in the UK. You can see it with Trump in the US. It it, it does make me think a little bit about the relationship of this to the real world. So one way of talking about this is just to say, you know, well, people go on Twitter and, you know, they kind of, they play act as revolutionaries and kind of violent insurgents and extremists, and, and then it doesn't really bleed over in, into real world politics. But it does seem to me that it, it's creating a real, real long-term polarization in, in our societies. And so just um, last week sometime, this conservative activist in the, in the US called Ali Alexander tweeted that he was, quote, willing to give my life for the fight, by which he meant stopping the steal and, and getting the, the election handed to Trump. And then the official account of the Arizona Republican Party actually retweeted this this tweet and said, he's willing to give his life, are you? So really endorsing violence. And I think they would only do that if they believed that that was just kind of rhetoric and people thing on social media. But this kind of violence does actually spill over increasingly into the real world, right? So we, we've seen over the last couple of years um, incidents of right-wing political violence. Actually, just this weekend, there was a Proud Boys, I, I don't want to say demonstration, let's say riot. There was a Proud Boys riot in DC um, where several hundred Proud Boys kind of went around beating up people and and, and van Vandalizing property. I, I, I do, I do wonder if we, we have now extremist groups and worldviews that are kind of bedded down in our societies for the long haul, and whether there's really anything that can be done to to um to to, to rip them up and to stop them from continually radicalizing our politics. Yeah, you are right. Things have become lost, and maybe that would have happened anyway. But I can't help but feel that social media has certainly helped smooth the path to that end point that we're at at the moment where there is so much polarization and it may even have been the reason why it happened in the first place i mean it's it's difficult to disentangle isn't it but the point that you made about social media posts the more extreme they are the more likely they are to get traction and get retweeted and unfortunately that's just a fact of human nature. I mean, I I was in the kind of first wave of blogging in the UK. So I, I set up a blog. I called it Mark Reckons. I mean, I haven't really updated it for quite a few years now. Um, but there were a whole bunch of bloggers around the same time. So Ian Dale, who's now a presenter on LBC, um, had a very widely read blog called Ian Dale's Diary. There were bloggers um, as part of the Liberal Democrats. I was a Lib Dem at the time. There were um, very prominent Labour bloggers and there was Labour List that was set up as well. Um, and there were quite a few on the Conservative side as well. At the time, the Conservatives were in opposition and um, that seemed to be a catalyst for them to really sort of, you know, push on the, on the when social media and blogging in particular started really ramping up. Um, that really seemed to give them the impetus to do it. But there was this one blog called Guido Forks. The blog's actually, or it was called Order Order, but everyone calls it Guido Forks. Um, and of all of those political, my one and all of the others, I mean, most of the people in the blogosphere kind of knew each other. We used to talk to each other. We'd meet each other at conferences and on panels and stuff. So I got to know the people in that world pretty well. And of all of them, the only one, that ever actually, and he's still going now, and he's still going concerned and making money, is Order Order, is Guido Fawkes. And Guido Fawkes is the one of all of those that was most like the sun or the star or the people. That, that was basically what it was. It's like 
It was like a tabloid version of a blog. There was no reason, no, well, there was no ostensible had to go like that. There were so many blogs out there that were thoughtful, that didn't use sound bites, that analyzed things, that used very perceptive arguments to look at things from different perspectives. You know, sometimes some blogs were famed for having very, very, very long pieces that could be thousands and thousands of words long because, you know, you're not restricted in a blog. You know, yeah, you could make them 500 words, but you could make them 10,000 words and nothing to stop you. You know, it was like let a thousand flowers bloom. And yet the one that survived that came through and that was actually a financial going concern at the end of it all is order order. The one that is most like a tabloid. News. And that told me something very important about the nature of the way humans interact with news, with comment, which is that people like that sort of thing. They like simplicity. They don't like nuance. They like simple messages. And so I kind of view the blogosphere as a kind of early stage social media. I mean, back in the day, Twitter wasn't really around very much. Facebook hadn't taken off to the extent it has now. You know, you didn't have Instagram. You didn't have WhatsApp. You, know, you didn't have these other forms of social media. And you now do. But having had all of that experience in the blogosphere, it has taught me, and you see this on Twitter all the time now, it's the simple messages. I think it was Reagan who, um, caught, I, don't think, I don't think he invented this, but I, I think he certainly um, uh, sort of boosted it, which is if you're explaining, you're losing. I mean, you've only got to look at build the wall, stop the steal, get Brexit done. I mean, this is the way politics is now. Despite the fact that we've got or perhaps because we've got, I'm not sure, loads of 24-hour news channels, we've got social media, we've got all kinds of other ways that people can interact with each other. And it is difficult to absorb it all. I mean, there's too much for you to absorb. And therefore, they come up with these very simplistic slogans. Uh, and it doesn't really matter what the substance is behind the slogans. When sound bites hit reality, you know, build the wall, the wall wasn't built. It hasn't been built. But the number of people I've seen interviewed in the US who say, I'm going to vote for Trump because he got rid of Obamacare and he built the wall. Well, no, he didn't. He hasn't done either of those things. But because they're in their filter bubbles, which is what you were referring to, they think he has. So it, you know, I remember when Trump was first elected, I thought, oh, he's going to be in trouble now, isn't he? Because he's got to build this wall. He's got to get rid of Obamacare, but make sure that people still have pre-existing conditions covered. And he's got to do this. He's got to do all the things he promised. In the end, it doesn't really matter that he hasn't delivered any of those things. You know, people will say they voted for Trump because he said he was, because he said he was going to do stuff with healthcare, because he said he was going to do this, he was going to do that. But ultimately, they're not they haven't voted for him in 2020 because he delivered any of them. Things have shifted so far. It's become a culture war. It's there are all kinds of other reasons why people are voting for him. And I do think you've said that um, unless the social media companies are able to do something and have to give them a bit of credit. They have tried to an extent. I'm, I'm far from convinced they've tried anything like hard enough because the problem with Facebook, for example, is it's actually built into their business model. Again, it's like an extreme version of what we used to have back in the day of when someone only ever read the Daily Mail. And then after yeah. 10 years of them only ever reading the Daily Mail, you talk to them and it was like speaking to someone, it was like speaking to a human version of the Daily Mail leader column. But you get that now in an even more extreme form. And I think it is going to take kind of root and branch reform of those social media sites. Now, I think without some kind of reform of the way social media works, it's going to be very difficult to reverse this trend. And I, I fear it will get worse before it will get better precisely for that reason i think you've you've hit on a very salient point there thanks so much for joining us today mark and, and giving us these insights no problem really enjoyed it thanks for asking me 
That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Janice Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time.